Welcome to the podcast for Green Hill Church. You can find out more information about Green Hill Church and how to take your next step with Jesus online at greenhillchurch.com. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 2, the book of James chapter 2. If you are uh, new with us, if, if you're a guest or if you uh, haven't been here uh, in, a, in a few weeks or months, uh, we just want you to know we're glad that you're here. Uh, we are walking through the book of James. We started in August in James chapter 1, and we're uh, journeying through that together. And we're in chapter 2 now. It, what I would say is a very uh, unique and uh, unique passage. It, it, it can actually be controversial in, in, in some ways, and so we want to walk through that and talk through that. Uh, last week, I did part one, Authentic Faith Part 1, and uh, this week is Authentic P- uh, Faith Part 2. It's a very creative title, I know. Uh, so we just went with the same one, just added part two to it, and uh, that'll, that'll get us done there. So I'm grateful for that. Uh, but G- uh, James chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 20 through 26. But before we read it, I want to just kind of remind us of where we were last week with this. If you uh, weren't able to, to be here for that, go back and listen to it because it kind of sets some foundation for us for uh, today. But uh, the main point last week, let me, let me share with you the main point last week. It was this, saving faith will result in faithful fruit without. So when we have authentic saving faith within our hearts, it's going to do something in us. It's going to lead to a faithful fruit without. Um, That's just what the Bible says. And that's what James was teaching us last week. But he was also giving us a warning to understand. And this warning is that we can express a form of faith that is not saving faith. We can express a form of faith that is not a saving faith. And that's what I would call a counterfeit faith, one that isn't authentic, one that is empty, as we'll see, as we talked about last week and continue, we'll talk about this morning. So as we understand this reality, let's look at verses 20 through 26. It says this in God's word, it says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. Don't you just love his just intensity with that? You foolish person. He goes on and he says in verse 21, so he's going to show them, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, If you are a student of the Bible, again, as we talked about last week, you read this and it sends some some signals off in your mind to say, hey, there's a problem with this passage. And if you're not familiar, let me show you the problem, okay? I'm going to put two scriptures on the screen side by side. One is in Romans from Paul, and one is one that we just read in James chapter 2 by James. Now, you're smart people, right? So if you look at this, you would say, those are two contradictory statements. James says, you see that a person is justified, all right? So both Paul and James are on the same page here. We're both justified. James goes on to say, we're justified by works. 
Paul says we're justified by faith, but they both clarify it's works and not by faith alone. And Paul says it's by faith apart from works of the law. These are what we would say potential issues. And so I want us to look at this and I want us to to understand what's happening. Why indeed are they not in conflict, but rather unified together, accomplishing something very, very specific. Now to help illustrate this, I want to draw our attention to the three musketeers. Okay. Now this is a very theological way to understand what's happening between Paul and James. If you notice on the screen, this is a picture of the three musketeers. They're fighting. Okay. Now, the way that they're fighting is back to back. They are together on one team, turned back to back, facing different enemies. What's happening with Paul and James is they're not fighting toe to toe against one another, but rather, if you will, Paul and James are fighting back to back against two separate enemies. What do I mean by that? Well, what is Paul addressing? Paul is getting at a very important issue that we need to understand, that we need to make sure that we have very clear understanding, and it is this. Your salvation cannot be accomplished by yourself. In other words, Paul says, you are justified by faith apart from your works. Meaning, he was fighting against the deception, the lie, that you can somehow earn your way into a relationship with God, that somehow you can earn your way into heaven, that one day when you stand before the judgment seat of God, you stand there and you say, well, God, I've done this and I've done this and I was born into this family and I went to this church and I gave this amount of money and I helped these people and I did all these things for you. And he's going to say, I'm sorry, I did not know you. The issue is that your good will never outweigh the fact that you have something called sin in your life. And the scripture says that if we have just any amount of sin, if we sin against a holy God, then we stand condemned already. We are objects of wrath, if you will. Why? Because he is a holy God. He is a perfect God. And there has to be something done within us, transformation. The sin in our life has to be dealt with. And so what Paul is reminding his hearers and his readers is this, that you can't earn your salvation. He's fighting that enemy, that deception, that lie. And so James, having his back to Paul, says, amen, I agree with that, brother. You get him. But he's got a whole other enemy that he's fighting on this side, and it's what I would call easy believism. Easy believism. Now, what is that? That is a very non-theological term to basically explain this, that there are those who believe that if they just believe in their heads, that they, yeah, Jesus is real. Jesus is God's son. Sure, he died on the cross. Great. Let me sign the card, do what I need to do so I can get to heaven. Great. As long as I get that and I'm good, it doesn't matter anything else. It's called easy believism. It's simply an inauthentic, a counterfeit faith. It's one that does no transformation within you. It's just all head knowledge. It's all verbal words. It's all putting on a facade, putting on a mask, if you will, to cover up the the sin in your life. It is simply inauthentic because it does nothing within you. And what James was addressing were people who said, sure, I believe in God. Sure, I believe in Jesus. And James says, as we read last week, well, even the demons believe that and they shudder. And so they're fighting two different enemies 
trying to get at this very important issue. What is authentic faith? What is authentic saving faith? And do you have it? See, James is not comparing a faith and a works in this text, but rather he's comparing an authentic saving faith and a counterfeit dead faith. Authentic faith leads to salvation. It leads to transformation within, but a counterfeit faith leads to eternal judgment. And again, he asks this question for us, which do you have? So I want to walk us through this text. And so if you look at verse 20, if you're taking notes with us, the first point is this, counterfeit faith or an unauthentic faith masks a sinful heart. It masks a sinful heart. Now, what is a counterfeit faith? Well, it's what we just talked about. It's the two enemies that Paul and James are fighting against. One is a uh, sense that we earn our salvation through religious duty and that we can be good enough to uh, get God's approval in our life. The other is the easy believism that we check the box or we give mental agreement or we sign the card. We get, as I showed you last week, we get the golden ticket because we did all the things that we're supposed to do, but yet our hearts have not been transformed. And so James is fired up a bit. He's just stated that faith by itself is empty, that it's dead in the previous verses, that it's, as we looked last week, a mirage or the chocolate bunny that's hollow, as I mentioned last week. And so now he asks this question. He says, do you want to be shown? Do you want me to prove to you that what I'm saying is true? And notice he calls the person the foolish person. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? And again, that seems intense and that seems uh, not very nice. And that's not something that we would encourage you to use that language around people calling them fools. But what James is doing here is very interesting because the word foolish person, that word fool there literally means empty. He's saying, you empty person, do you want to be shown that you are indeed empty? In other words, that your faith is not authentic, that you think that you can say that you have faith, but have no works, no evidence, no fruit living out of your life. Let me show you just how empty you indeed are. And so he goes through some Old Testament examples to explain it. Now, this word empty, as I said, is it's this or the word foolish, it means empty. It's one who's lacking in spiritual insight. There's a, there's a lack of understanding. There's a sense in which the, the picture of what faith without action is empty. It's a person who stands before God at judgment seat, and God says, why should I allow you into heaven? And they're empty-handed. It's like the chocolate hollow bunny. There's nothing to show for what they've claimed with their mouths. It's empty. James calls that person a fool. And I think about this word fool, and I think it's the picture of deception. Have you ever seen somebody or heard of someone being deceived? It's foolish. But yet how easily are we ourselves deceived? James addresses this issue of deception in chapter 1, verse 22, when he says, Do not be hearers only, but we need to be what? Doers of the word. So be doers of the word, not just hearers only. And then what does he say right after that? Verse 22 of chapter 1, And so deceive yourselves. In other words, if you claim 
to hear God's word, but yet don't do it, then you are deceiving yourselves. And what James would say now is you are empty. You're foolish. And he goes on in the end of chapter one and verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious, this is the person whose faith is empty. There's nothing there because it's not transforming his life. It is masking the sinfulness within. Church, we are a people who are really good at masking, aren't we? We're great at portraying what we want others to think about ourselves. That's called deception. And the danger of that is we are also deceiving ourselves. But the truth of the matter is we can't deceive God. He knows our hearts. He knows the sin within us. And so if we put on a a front, if you will, we claim something with our mouth and, and we do the part of living the religious life, if you will, without authentic faith, it's simply just masking. It's just covering up the sinfulness within us. See, James is addressing some people who had what we would call mere faith, faith without anything else. There was nothing weighty behind it. It was empty faith. And the reason we know that is because James is addressing very specific issues to say, you claim with your mouth that you believe in this Jesus, but yet you aren't taking care of the widows and the orphans and the poor. And your language does not reflect that of Christ Jesus. And when the person that comes in that doesn't look like the rest of you, you shun them and go to the people that do look like you. You aren't living out the very basic of what it means to follow Jesus, and that's to love people. And he says, you are empty. And what you're doing is masking a sinfulness within your heart. And so James says, be careful. Be careful. Don't allow the religiousness and the religiosity of your upbringing and your life to, to mask from yourself even what's really happening within your heart. This morning we have our family dedication and I love being able to walk alongside families and help them just journey together as they seek to raise their kids to know the Lord. And one of the things that I would encourage you parents, but really all parents is be careful because we can, in our culture, train up our kids to know how to look the part, but yet have hearts that are far from Jesus. Don't be so consumed and so concerned about appearance. Be more consumed and concerned about their hearts. And I think that's what James is getting at here. Because it is out of the heart when it is transformed that all the things you are worrying about will come to fruition. And so focus on the heart. What is your heart? What does our hearts look like? Don't allow an inauthentic counterfeit faith mask the sinfulness within but rather scripture says confess it to the lord and come before him and so james says do you want me to show you you me show you what i've been talking about you foolish person and he goes into some old testament examples so, so number two point number two is this authentic faith leads to an obedient heart When we have authentic faith, when we have saving faith, it will lead to an obedient heart. How do we know that? Scripture says that we, the old is gone, the new has come. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. 
We become alive. We are dead in our sin, but now we are alive to righteousness, meaning this, that we long to walk in obedience to Jesus. It becomes evident in our life. And so James uses Abraham as an example. Now, Abraham, he is, he is the, the pinnacle, if you will, of, of Christian uh, world, for the Jewish people in particular. If you know the people of Israel, Abraham was the beginning of that. So if you go all the way back to Genesis, that's where we get Abraham. And Abraham was a man that God came to and he said, I want to make you a great nation. I want to form my people, a a people for myself out of you. And it's going to be more than you can count, more than the stars, more than the the sand on the shores. And and Abraham's sitting there saying, okay, God, this this is a great story. This is a great plan, but I don't have a son. So how is this going to happen? And God says, I've got that. You don't worry about that. And so we know that this is the story of Abraham, that God provides a son for him. And so we come to this text, and we see in verse 21 where James writes this, Was not Abraham our father? And he uses father because he's the father of the Israelite people. He's the the father of Jews, and he's kind of the beginning of this whole movement of God, forming a people for himself. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now this word justified, it's important for us to understand what what James is talking about. What is going on here? This is a very theological term. And so I want to give you a definition to, to help you understand what this means. This is a definition from Douglas Moo. He's an incredible scholar and writer. And so he, he writes this. Justification is this, God's judicial verdict of innocence pronounced over the sinner who trusts Jesus Christ in faith. Now, let me read it again. God's judicial verdict of innocence pronounced over the sinner who trusts Jesus Christ in faith. This is a judicial term. Picture yourself in a courtroom. All the evidence is stacked up. You are guilty as charged. There is no you getting out of this one. You can't argue this one. You can't come up with excuses on this one. You are guilty. However, the judge, when it comes time to pronounce your guilt, surprisingly, shockingly says, you are innocent. And you say, how can this be? Because you know that you're guilty. Well, it's possible because someone came and took your place. Someone took your guilt upon themselves. They took your punishment, and so you are set free. It is a declaration. It's a word that means just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. And the beauty is this, as this author writes, it is when we trust Jesus Christ in his work, because he's the one who took your place, when you place faith in him, that is when you are declared not guilty. That is that justification work. That is salvation, if you will. But James writes here, he says, was not Abraham justified when? By his works. So that's a little complicated. So how do we understand this? Well, here's how. If you notice, what is the work that Abraham does to be justified according to this text? What does it say? It says, when he took his son Isaac to sacrifice him. Now, if you don't know that story, let me fill you in. So God promises to Abraham that he's going to make him a great nation. Abraham says, well, I don't have a son. God says, I got this. God provides 
Isaac. Okay, Abraham is many years old. He's very old and he's got Isaac and God comes to him and he says, Isaac, I want you to take, or Abraham, I want you to take Isaac and I want you to take him up on the mountain. I want you to sacrifice him unto me. Now, can you imagine what that prayer moment was like between Abraham and God? God, are you sure? You, you promised, for one thing, that you would make a great nation out of this boy that you gave me. God, you promised. Like, this doesn't seem to align with your character, God. But what does Abraham do? He says, yes, Lord. The scripture says that he takes Isaac and he takes some servants and they take all the things that they need for their sacrifice and they begin this journey up this mountain. And church, don't miss what happens. I want to take you to Genesis chapter 22 where this conversation on this journey takes place. Genesis 22 verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, these are the, the young men that were with him to help him carry all the sacrifice and get it all set up. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. And don't miss this last phrase. And we will come again to you. Do you see it? We will come again. Something was happening inside of Abraham to say, I trust and believe and have faith in God so much that he's asking me to do this and I don't know how this is all gonna go down but I know that he is faithful and we are both because of his promise coming back. So you fast forward a little bit to the next verse seven and Isaac, okay, young men, they stay back. It's just Isaac and dad walking up the mountain. Isaac says to his father, dad, my father, Abraham. Abraham says, here I am, my son. Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Can you imagine what's going through Abraham's heart and his mind in that moment when his son is starting to piece together some things? Abraham responds, listen, don't miss this. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Church, this is a foretaste of the fact that God himself sends his son as the lamb for our sacrifice. But this is, this is what's happening. This is, this, this is what's happening on this journey up the mountain. And so we get up the mountain and God provides. We know that he puts Isaac on the altar and he, he, he takes the knife and he's, he's, he's ready to be obedient to God. And God says, stop, stop. He looks over and God provides a sacrificial animal. But here's the beauty. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the writer, it's the, it's the hall of faith. It's, it's, it's going through all these Old Testament figures and, and their, their posture of faith before God. And this is what it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, he knew this is, it was supposed to be through Isaac. 
But he considered that God was able, listen, even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So scripture says that Abraham, by faith, believed. He didn't know, but he said, even if I have to kill my son, I believe that God can raise him from the dead. So I trust fully in God. Do you see the context? So now let's go back to James chapter 2. When he says, Abraham was counted or justified by his work. What was his work? Taking his son to the sacrificial altar. But don't miss this. His work was rooted, as we just saw, in his belief, his faith in who God is. Not was, is. And church, don't miss this. If Abraham did not believe those things about God, that God was full of, of, of trust and that he could understand that his promise is secure, I can, I, I can almost guarantee you Abraham does not go up on that journey. Abraham does not place Isaac on that altar if he does not believe in who God is. You see it? And so James says in chapter 2, verse 22, and this is giving commentary to verse 21, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. So even James is explaining and showing us, giving commentary to the fact that Abraham's work of going to the sacrificial uh, altar with his son, that act of obedience, that work of obedience was rooted in faith. So his justification, his being declared not guilty was rooted ultimately in what? In Faith that was authentic enough to demonstrate obedience. Sacrificial obedience. This word, faith was completed. I find this really interesting in verse 22. Faith was active and then faith was completed. I've got a question for you. Because faith is talking about salvation. What is the goal of your salvation? What are you aiming for? You're here this morning. So there's got to be some kind of faith inside of you. What is your aim? I, I want to challenge us for a second with this. I remember as a kid thinking, I want to go to heaven. You remember that thought as a kid? I got two options. I got heaven and I got hell. Give me heaven every single day. As an adult, as you learn more about heaven, you're like, this is going to be a pretty good place. Give me, give me some more heaven. And church, here's, here's, here's my, um, let, me, let me challenge us in our Western wealthy world that we live in. We have grown so accustomed to getting what we want and our pleasure and our happiness, that that's become the goal of our faith. We just want heaven. We want the good place. We want the easy place. Now, listen, church, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. God wants you in heaven. 
And God is so good, he is gifting us the gift of heaven. But I see when James says that his faith was completed by his works, I see an aim and a goal for something much deeper than just happiness in heaven. I see the goal of one who has placed faith in God and has a a work of God has transformed him so much so that it lives itself out where it is sacrificially willing and able to trust God so much that he will do anything to what God says to do. I think that's the aim of our faith, that we live in such a way, that we work in such a way that God is glorified fully by our obedience to him. By doing so, he gets the fame, he gets the glory. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 14. It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I think this is the picture. That if we truly have an authentic faith, then we're going to be led by the Spirit of God and we're going to be called sons of God and we're going to live in such a way that it is evident because of our willingness to obey God no matter what it costs. I think that's the aim of our faith. The dessert is we just get to be with Jesus forever. See, if, if the aim was simply that we get to go to heaven, then why not just take us as soon as we trust faith in Jesus Christ? Because he's got something more for us, something to do, something to live out for his glory and for his name. An authentic faith is an active faith that does something that then is completed by our works. This word completed, it means maturity. It's, it's reached its intended goal. So now in verse 23, this is where, it, it, this is good. In verse 23, watch this. And so in the scripture, again, this is all one sentence. Let me, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, faith was active along with his work and faith was completed by his work. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. What did that just say? Was it his works or his belief? See, that word counted as righteous or counted him righteousness, that is the same understanding of the word justified in verse 21. And the question becomes, if you look at that text in your scripture, there's quotes around it, which means it's a quote from the Old Testament. And so what matters really in this is where in the Old Testament was that quoted from? Genesis chapter 22 is the story of Abraham taking Isaac to the top of the mountain. You would think that after God provides the lamb, Abraham believes and says, yes, God, I believe you, and has counted him as righteous. That's not where he's quoting from. He's actually quoting from chapter 15, seven chapters before, and if you are counting, it's actually about 30 years before Abraham went up that mountain when God came to him, and it says that Abraham believed that God would provide a son for him, and it is in that belief of who God is that God counted him as righteous. So where did his righteousness come from? It was belief in God. So why did he climb the mountain? Because he had already believed and it was counted him as righteous. So here's what I want you to understand, and here's what I want to connect these dots for you. What does it mean to be counted as righteous? If you go to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, it's on the screen. This is such an important verse. For our sake, that's you and me, 
he made him, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Don't miss what's happening in this. God himself sends Jesus, the perfect son of God who knows no sin, never experienced it, never done it, hasn't had it. He comes to earth and he becomes sin. How did he become sin? Well, he took your sin and my sin upon himself on the cross. And the scripture says that if we believe in him, trust in him, place faith authentic, faith in him, then what does it say? We might become what? The righteousness of God. So we get God's righteousness, not by works, but by God imputing it, gifting it to us. This is huge. Now, here's what I, I, I've got my trusty whiteboard out here, okay? This is high-tech stuff that we're going to be doing this morning. And here's what I want you to understand. There's two different understandings of righteousness. If I were to ask you, are you righteous? Some of you would have a hard time raising your hand because you know your life. Some of you would say, yeah, I'm righteous. And what I would say is you're looking at two different pictures of righteousness. Let me explain. There is our standing before God. This is what we would call our positional righteousness. Meaning this, what is it that we stand upon when we stand before God Almighty? It is our position. This is when God justifies us, when he declares us not righteous, when we become the righteousness of God, that is our standing before him. So in other words, when you go before the Father at judgment day, and he says, why should I allow you into heaven? You can be like the foolish one who is empty-handed, has nothing to stand on, or you can be the one who has placed faith authentically in the work of Jesus and received his righteousness, and you can stand there and say, I am standing upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ and him and him alone. I have nothing to offer myself. This is our standing, this is our position. But at the same time, while God gives us his righteousness, we have to grow into living righteousness. This is the everyday. This is the be holy as I am holy. This is the sanctification work. This is, this is what James is getting at when he says you need to go and you need to care for the widows and the orphans and you need to love people and you need to care for those in need and you need to, to do these things. This is righteous living. This is living in reflection of who I am, who God is. Our eyes see as God sees. Our hearts love as God loves. And our feet and our hands go and do as God does. This is righteous living. So here's the question. With Abraham, his standing before God was Genesis 15 when he believed God and it was counted him as righteous. His righteous living was justified when he walked up that mountain to say, I don't just stand before you, God, complete. I understand what it means to walk with you, complete. I say yes, holistically, in all obedience to you. And in James chapter 22, what does it say? Faith was, what's the word? It's the word active. Do you see it? Our faith becomes active. When we trust in Christ, it does something in us, and all of a sudden it moves us. It has to act. Authentic faith acts. And when authentic faith acts, it leads us to live a life that is different. But then James 22, verse 22, doesn't just say it's active. It is a what? A complete. 
a complete faith. So as we live this life of obedience, sacrificially standing in the righteousness of God, it completes our faith. And we have this holistic, authentic picture of understanding of what James and Paul are both getting at, that we have a faith that is rooted in the work of Jesus Christ, but then comes inside of us and lives out a work that is to glorify God. And it is in that that we are justified, meaning this, as we have a standing faith, a positional understanding of what Christ did, it compels us to live. And as we live and see the fruit of the work of God in our life, it, it, it completes that work and then allows us to understand that I indeed am standing in Christ. And it just, it just overflows and it just, the cycle spins and, and you grow in the glory of God and the work that he's done in your life, in your salvation. This is what God's called us to. This is authentic faith. Now, very quickly, I want to show you the last illustration. He uses a lady named Rahab. And Rahab, scripture says, she was a prostitute. Now, why did God use Abraham and God use Rahab? Here's why. Because he, wanted, he wants both ends of the spectrum. The most religious elite that there is and the one furthest from God that there is. And what he's saying, and this is point number three, is this. Simple faith results in radical grace. If you go back to the story of Rahab in Joshua, she lived in the walls of Jericho. And as the people of God were coming in and Jericho was there, it was a mighty city and God was gonna do a work there to, to conquer that city so that they can move into the promised land. They sent in some spies, some messengers ahead of time. Well, scholars show us that Rahab was also an innkeeper and so a lot of people would stay there at her place. And it shows us that these messengers, these spies, were staying at her place. And there were some people from Jericho that were like, hey, they're staying there and you need to turn them over. And basically the scripture says this, that Rahab had heard the stories of what God had done among his people. And she believed and she said, have mercy on me. I believe that your God is the true living God. And so she helped rescue, helped save those messengers. So James says, was it not her work of doing that for those messengers that God justified her? Why did she do that work? Because she believed, she had authentic faith in who God is. It drives everything. And so James finishes up with this verse, he says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Meaning this, if you have simply just given verbal assent to God, your faith is dead. But if you've placed faith in the work of Jesus Christ and you stand upon the work of Jesus Christ in your righteous position because of him and him alone, and you understand that God has transformed you and you have an active living faith, it verifies, if you will, the authenticity of your faith being complete. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? I understand that this is a lot and this is heavy, but I want to ask the question that we began with that James is really getting at. What kind of faith do you have do you have an authentic saving faith 
that you know that you're standing upon the righteousness of God and what he has done and you've trusted fully in him for your salvation. And the evidence of that is that it's bearing fruit in your life, that your faith is active, that it's transforming you. Or do you have what we mentioned earlier, something that's more of a counterfeit, something that's not authentic? Don't be deceived this morning. Trust in Jesus fully for your salvation. He's waiting for you. He longs to save you. Father, I come before you right now and I thank you for your word and I thank you that you have called us as your people not to just get into heaven, but you've called us to trust in you so much so that it leads to a sacrificial willing obedience. And God, we are overwhelmed at the mercy and the grace that you have bestowed upon us. And so help us, Lord, to walk in that. Lord, I pray for the person who has drifted away from you from the active living faith. Lord, I pray that you would draw them back to yourself this morning, that they would repent of that and they would surrender fully to walk in obedience to you. Lord, I pray for the person that's never placed faith in you for salvation. Lord, I pray that this morning would be the day of salvation so that when they stand before you in judgment, they can say, not anything I've done, but completely the work of Jesus in my life. Lord, we trust you for that. Lord, you have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? We're gonna respond in song. I'll be down here if you need someone to pray for you. My challenge to you is this. If you need Jesus, don't walk out of here today without giving your heart to him. Come find me, come find Pastor Casey at the end of the service. And we wanna talk with you about that. But let's respond as God leads. Thanks for listening to the podcast for Green Hill Church. For more information about Green Hill Church, go to greenhillchurch.com. Thanks for listening.